Well, let's turn to that passage in uh, Mark chapter 11. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, which is telling us the story of Jesus, the emphasis has been on uh, demonstrating to us what Mark says right at the very beginning of the book. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first part of Mark really is unpacking what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, which means for Jesus to be one who shares the very nature of God as God. That's the emphasis that has been so far. We begin to see a difference of a change of emphasis at the end of chapter 10 when Jesus heals a blind man, a man called Bartimaeus in Jericho. And this blind man starts to call on Jesus as the son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The outcome is that Jesus heals this man who's congenitally blind, and he's able to see. But the story of the physical healing of this man Bartimaeus is also a story about what can happen in the spiritual realm when someone who is blind to the identity of Jesus has their eyes open to who he really is. And uh, the beggar comes to Jesus praying that he would heal him, asking him to heal him just the way we go to God, asking God to do things for us. And Jesus had stopped and given him his attention. Jesus Focus his attention on this man like Psalm 72 talks about when it says predicted, predictively of the Messiah, he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. Jesus stops to deliver this needy man who's crying out to him. The emphasis is on his, his shouting Jesus' name because he, he can't see him, of course. He's blind. He doesn't know how many crowd, of the crowd are around him. Uh, or that Jesus will notice him. So he cries out to get Jesus' attention, and Jesus heals him. Uh, he, is the, he is the king, he is the Lord who hears and answers prayer. And he also fulfills Scripture, the Scripture of Isaiah 35, which describes the homecoming of the people of God into the royal city and says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. So all of this is in preparation for the passage that we're looking at this evening. This man was blind. He's come to believe that Jesus is the son of David, and that's moving us on. We're not looking at Jesus now as the son of God, but in his human nature as the son of David. And the very language, son of David, introduces us to the language of kingship within Israel. Now, you would, be, you would be forgiven for thinking that it's perhaps easier to think of Jesus as the Son of God than as a king. Here in America, it's been a long time since we've had kings. And uh, uh, Pennsylvania got its royal charter, I think, from Charles II, if I'm not… Is that right? Thanks. Charles II. Now we've got Charles III. When I was growing up, Charles was there in the background of our lives. We, people used to say, Charles will never be king, because they didn't like Charles I or Charles II. 
So we'll see how they get on with Charles III. But here's the point. We're, we're not used to kings. And, and if you're of a particular turn of mind, you'll probably be cautious about thinking of a, an earthly leader and an earthly ruler in this sense, because that's what immediately comes to mind when we use this kingly language. And that's even helpful, really, to understand what's going on here in chapter 11. Trans, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is the first day in the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And for no other part of his life in all of this gospel of Mark do we have as much detail as is packed into the details uh, the storyline now as we go further towards the end of this gospel. And the reason for that is quite straightforward. Jesus has come to die. All the other things that Jesus does are great, but he has come to die. Now he's initiating the events that will lead to his death. He's not going to commit suicide, but he's initiating the events that will make his death possible at the hands of of his enemy. And so, the son of David, the king of Israel, the one identified by a blind man who was given not only physical sight, but spiritual sight to see who Jesus really is, this one, the king of Israel, is coming to his capital city, Jerusalem. And so, as we come to look at this chapter, verses 1 to 11, point us to Jesus and his messianic mission. Jesus had said to this man, Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus. We want God to do that for us this evening. We want God to enable us who do not know him or who are struggling with the message of Christianity we want those of us who are here like that this evening to have this little revolution in our, in our heads, in our reason, in our understanding, as well as in our hearts, for us to see, not see with the physical eyes, but to see by way of pennies dropping in your mind who Jesus really is. Well, as we come to do that, we'll see that he's coming with evident intention. His going to Jerusalem is no accident. <clears throat> he's not crowded into doing it. He rides in by his own will, at his own initiative. In the past, in Mark's gospel and in the other gospels, Jesus avoids this political, in quotes, this political kind of move. He's tended to stay as far away from Jerusalem as possible with the occasional foray down into the capital city where he goes unrecognized, unknown, in secret. He's been to the temple before. He's been around the city before. He's healed people in the city before and then moved out and away into the distant Galilee region. But now he's come He's not going anywhere now except Jerusalem. And he's come to die. This was explained again just two days earlier. And you find that in chapters, chapter 10 
verse 22, as he was on the road going to Jerusalem, Jesus walking ahead of them, they were amazed, and those who followed them were afraid. They knew the authorities were out to get him. And taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. As we read that in the story, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is not doing that because he, he's trying to flagellate himself or punish himself for some weird psychological reason. He's doing that for us, for people like us. He's going to take the blame for every one of our infractions of the law of God and the laws of man. He's taking this path on our behalf. And as he takes this path, he's doing it in the light of Scripture. He's actually not only uh, pursuing his messianic mission, but also he is moving with prophetic purpose. There are echoes of the Old Testament Scriptures all over this particular story. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel, who's a prophet, prophesies about coming events, the, the, the end of history, as it were, when Messiah comes. And the coming events include finding lost colts, uh, the little animal that Jesus will ride on as he goes into Jerusalem. You go further back into the Old Testament to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob is predicting the coming of the Messiah, and he's giving blessings to all of his 12 children. Jacob is renamed Israel, and he has 12 children who are the basis for the 12 tribes of Israel. And the one tribe that's singled out is the tribe of Judah, which is going to be the royal tribe. The royal tribe. The king has a scepter. Scepter is a wand that he carries that signifies his royal status. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until he comes, Shiloh comes, to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. We're reminded we're dealing with this very important reality. There, back in Genesis 49, there is the picture of a king on his throne with his long staff. The top of the staff is leaning on his shoulder. The bottom of the staff is on the ground by his feet, between his feet. And this king is the king to whom absolute rights to rule belong. This is no nominal king. This is no King Charles or the first, second, or third or even King George, as they tried to make George Washington, and he turned it down. This is no earthly monarch. This is the king who's been expected from of old. And one of the signs of this king's messianic presence in verse 11 of chapter 49 of Genesis is that he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt, to the choicest branch of the vine. Now, here's a little bit of color and background to this. If you were a vineyard keeper, the last thing that you would do 
with your vine is use it to tie up a donkey. Because the donkey's movements would destroy the vine, and the vine is precious. It takes years to, to get it right. And if you, can, if you can use your vine to tie up your donkey, then you are very, very wealthy indeed. And when this king comes, whose right it is to reign, he will bring prosperity with him, beatitude, that is, blessing with him, in order to give to his people. In Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet. He makes a connection with the Messiah and this donkey, this colt. He says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So here is Jesus coming then. He's coming to fulfill the prophetic purpose. And he's coming in obvious humility. He is not coming as an earthly king. He's not come to establish some kind of earthly hegemony. He is coming not to conquer in the war sense of conquer. He chooses this donkey, this lowly beast of burden, a working animal. And it's interesting that the Roman authorities, who are very sensitive to any, any, any form of uh, uh, national feeling or messianic uh, feelings in, in the community among the Jews, the Romans did nothing when Jesus went in with all these crowds hail, saying, Hail Jesus and, and uh, welcome Jesus. They did nothing. Just a few years before, in 86, the Romans had put down a political demonstration just like this with the bloody reprisals because the people who were doing there were, were working politically to try and overthrow Rome. Jesus has not come to overthrow Rome. He's actually come to overthrow all the kingdoms of this world. But overthrow them not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit, as millions and now billions of people find their everlasting hope in Him. So once again, Jesus disappoints the hopes of the religious leaders. They wanted, they wanted a military, political leader. He is not that leader. He's making that plain as he rides in on the colt, the foal of the donkey. And as he comes in, the people are excited by his coming. Probably urged on by some zealots in the, in the population, the people are ready to, to, to look at him as a potential candidate to overthrow Rome. And so they, they cry out these words, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now, we pray. They were thinking political liberation. Jesus' people with him knew he had come not to bring that kind of salvation but liberation from 
the world, the de- the, the flesh, and the devil, that kind of liberation. The, the leafy branches wafting in midair, just as they do at the ta- Feast of Tabernacles, was a sign of na- nationalistic fervor. It's as if they're imploring Jesus to become their political emancipator, to follow in the steps of Judas Maccabeus and kick out the Romans once and for all. And Jesus' whole manner runs counter to all these hopes and aspirations. And Jesus' demeanor here, by the way, should come as a solemn warning to those very sincere people who imagine and confuse an earthly kingdom with Jesus' heavenly kingdom. For those, whether of the left or the right, who imagine that Jesus' purpose is to establish an earthly kingdom, whether it's the liberation theology of the Marxist or or the theology of the extreme right wing, both of them, both of them are rebuked by Jesus' behavior right here. He is not interested in an earthly kingdom. Whenever the church in its history turns towards that, the result is invariably a turning down of spiritual life and zeal within the church. That is the fact of history. The church is not about these things. The Savior is not coming to do those things. He is coming to save His people from their sin. Well, that flows in to what happens next. Two things that tell us what is in Jesus' mind as He comes. In verse 11, we're told that Jesus entered Jerusalem and He went to the temple. And he looked around at everything. He went to the place of worship, and he looked around. That was where he was going. He wasn't heading for the royal palace. He's heading for the temple, the place where God is worshipped. He takes in everything he sees there. Jesus has come to inspect the temple. He is the Lord of the temple. It isn't, it isn't a mistake that when Jesus predicts what will happen when the disciples go to, to, to get this donkey, that he's able not only to tell them where exactly the donkey is, but he's also able to tell them that someone is going to come and ask them about the donkey. And then he gives them the, the answer that they need to hear. The Lord, meaning God, Adonai, the Lord, has need of it. And will send it back here immediately. It's the Lord has need of it. It's the Lord, Jesus is coming. He's coming as God into the city. He's coming as God now into the temple. And he's looking around and taking it all things. His eye surveyed all things. What's he looking for? What's he looking for? The answer is in verses 12 to 14. The incident here is a kind of acted parable, a prophetic 
sign, just like in the Old Testament. Prophets would uh, illustrate and drive home their message. Uh, The scholars who have studied the, the life of the fig tree, or a fig tree in leaf, says that whenever a fig tree is in leaf, you can expect to find figs. No leaves, no figs. Leaves, figs. It's quite simple. If you learn nothing else tonight, you've learned that. Here we're told that the fig harvest had not yet taken place. We're told that specifically in the text, telling you that these fig trees with leaves should have figs on them because they've not been harvested off of the trees yet. It's not time for that yet. The, the very word that's used means the season for the fig harvest. So Jesus comes into this, into this, uh, this area. He sees the fig tree in leaf, and he goes over to the tree to get a fig to eat. I hate figs. Uh, I can't imagine why he would want to do that. I can't even enter in or identify with him at all at this point. But he goes looking for a fig, and there's, there's no fig on the tree. Nothing. All there is on the tree are leaves. And Jesus judges the fig tree. And it seems so random. Why would you do that? Jesus Give us an explanation. And Mark does a very clever thing here. He kind of, I was going to say, interleaves the story of the fig tree and the story of the temple. Because they're meant to be connected. Do you notice the temple comes before and after? Look at that. He went into the temple. He looked around at everything. He goes to the fig tree. He gets to the fig tree. He fills around with the leaves. There's no figs. Then they come to Jerusalem and he enters the temple. What is Jesus doing by this action? He is saying that he, the Lord of the temple, has come to inspect the temple as he does the fig tree. And as he finds on the fig tree, so he has found in the temple, which is why he curses the fig tree and then goes on to cleanse the temple. Why has Jesus come to Jerusalem? He's come to Jerusalem in a way to come out as the Messiah of the Jews. He's come to Jerusalem to demonstrate that what's gone wrong with Jewish worship at that point is that they have turned the religion of God into a business. A business. Uh, uh, There was something you need to know about the way in which the temple worked. In order to keep the, the place pure and unadulterated by outside influences, 
when you went to the temple in order to offer a sacrifice, you couldn't buy one outside uh, and then at Acme and then bring it with you to the temple. No, you had to come and you had to pay somebody at the door. There was somebody sitting at the gate. And, but you, you, you couldn't just pay for, it for the sacrifice with your money, your dollars. No, they had temple money. It's obviously pounds sterling. They had, you had to convert your dollars into pounds sterling. And frankly, you're not getting much for, for your dollar when you go to pounds nowadays, uh, as we know only to... Uh, too well, and you didn't really get very much for your money that you were bringing with you from the, the person at the gate of the temple. Only then could you buy an animal for sacrifice. And so what they were doing, these Pharisees, is that they were becoming very wealthy off the money that was made. Very wealthy. These autocratic nobility in Jerusalem. And they held the purse strings, the Sadducees. And they were making a fat profit out of them. They were using religion as a means to line their own pockets. And what offends Jesus the most in verse 17 is that this was all being carried out in the courts, the court of the Gentiles. This is the only part of the temple, by the way, that anyone who is not a Jew could come into. The only part that a woman could come into. It was the only part of the temple that somebody who was inquiring after God and who wanted to know more about God would have to come into. And it was right there in that courtyard that this machinery of operations was going on. Imagine... You've come to pray, and you sit down in the spot reserved for you, and all you hear are bleating sheep, fluttering doves in crates, snorting animals, all waiting to be sold and sacrificed with the clink, clink, clink of counting shekels. And you've turned the worship of God into the traffic of the world, swirling around Now let's stand back and see what Jesus is doing. He's coming among the people of God. Just as he does, I think, whenever we come together for worship, he comes among the people of God and he sees the leaves. And he's checking the leaves. And he's looking for fruit. He's looking for progress. He's looking for growth. He's looking for, he's looking for life and energy among the people of God. And so very often when Jesus checks the leaves, he doesn't find any fruit. He doesn't find what he's looking for. Does he find faith? Does he find hope? Does he find love? Does he find steadfastness? Does he find honor? Does he find fruit? in your life. I think the churches are very, some of churches are very leafy Christians. But Jesus wants us to be fruitful Christians. And he wants us to be fruitful because there's a day in which we will give an account. 
Even if you're not a Christian this evening, you need to know that we Christians don't pat ourselves on the back here. Not in this church. We realize how far short of the glory of God we've become. We realize that there's coming a day of accountability even to us as God's people. When the King comes, when He comes finally, He is looking for a people who are waiting for Him, watching for Him, ready for Him. Are you ready for Him? Are you ready for Jesus when He comes? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who love His appearing. Are you loving the appearing, waiting for the Lord Jesus to come? Come as King. Or you think about what we read in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As Jesus comes to Jerusalem, So he comes to us tonight in this room. And he doesn't come merely to examine. Tonight when he comes to you, he comes with bread and wine. The bread and wine that are the earthly demonstration, signs of his body broken, his blood shed for our salvation. It's wonderful. And he's promised that when we sit at his table, he's there with us. The bread and the wine are the signs to you that he's with us. The bread and the wine are the signs that just as much as you can pick up the bit of bread and take that wine, one day you'll be able to put your hand in Jesus' hand. One day you'll be able to look into Jesus' eyes. One day you'll be able to sit with him on a park bench in the new Jerusalem. One day your eyes will be open to see God. That's a great promise this passage makes to us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we build up to this supper here to look forward beyond that to the supper one day we'll share in person with you. In Jesus' name, amen.